2: Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu/visit.
1: I'm Jamie Dumont.
2: I'm Rob Russo,
1: and this is the fabulous invalid. We were going to say it together. Oh, it says Jamie. I'm following the script. Oh, Rob, you are so good. That I way. follow the rules. Oh, okay, so we'll rule we didn't. It. We're not saying it together.
0: Okay. okay.
2: Hi, <laughs> we're at Orso tonight. We're back at Orso, our favorite little haunt. You can probably hear the
1: the people, the dishes clanging. And the, <laughs> hear the people, hear the people. What is that? That sounds like a song. It does sound like a song.
2: Make them hear you from ragtime.
1: Oh, yeah. I don't know. Well, speaking of our, our hearing songs, It's pretty crowded for for. It is. For a wintry night. It is. We should also say that um, the lovely Jennifer Samard is actually not with us tonight. That's right. And uh, the fabulous Leslie Kritzer is back, but she is traveling, and hopefully <laughs> we will see her in the new year. In the new year, yes. Fairly early
2: on. Very excited to have Leslie back on the show.
1: Yeah, we didn't talk about going down to D.C. and seeing her in Beetlejuice, did we? We
2: didn't. No, no. Jamie and I snuck down to D.C. for the pre-Broadway engagement of Beetlejuice uh, last month in November. Yeah. It was. Um, and it was such a delight to see Leslie, first it was. and foremost. Um, and I always love um, catching a show pre-Broadway, um, especially one that you know is definitely coming to Broadway because there's that opportunity to sort of compare notes uh, in a couple months' time.
1: And it was things that may or may not be the same, right? So on and so forth, right? Exactly. I just love the excitement of a show in a city that's not New York. Mm -hmm. You know, there's something really exciting about another town wrapping its arms around.
2: And DC has really become, um, in recent years, uh, a real test lab for for Broadway. You know, like it used to be in the old days in the 50s and 60s. Um, But the past couple years, you've had Dear Evan Hansen come from away. Mean Girls, and now Beetlejuice, that have all done their, their, their tryouts uh, in D.C. What show will be next? I know, right? <laughs> well, Dave the Musical was at Arena Stage over the fall, but I haven't heard anything about Dave making its way to New York. Oh, right. That was Mimi Paris was
1: in that, wasn't she? I believe so. Yeah. I wanted to see that. Me too. I'm a big fan. I think she's terrific.
2: D.C. in the summer is rough for me, though. I lived there for nine years. It can just be... I was there this summer. So hot, yeah. I was there with you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> we went to we we visited Signature Theater in Arlington. with our oh, that's right our second or third episode of the podcast. There I'll you tell go.
1: you, Rob, don't get old because it's really <laughs> tough on the,
2: the mind. The highest grossing week of the year, every year on Broadway, is the week around Christmas. Um, folks are paying premium prices to see Broadway shows. You know, just across the board, almost everything is sold out. And then you reach that high, and then, of course, there's the valley after the peak coming in January. Oh, I know you're going with that. I You know where I'm going. I'm winding up. Because on January 6th, there are three musicals closing on, well, three plays, three, three shows, I should say, closing on Broadway. Harvey Fierstein's Torch Song... Is which, which is terrible. So uh, sad. Amazing show. No, yes. Oh, <laughs> God, that sounded so sh- bad. The it's terrible is- that it's closing.
1: <laughs> yes, that's what I meant. I'm not quite with it tonight.
2: So. Uh, uh, Once on this island, the acclaimed revival that won the Tony Award last last year uh, is closing at the Circle in the Square. And Head Over Heels, which was uh, played at the Hudson Theater, um, opened last summer. And to the credit of their producers, has you know they've really put money behind that show to help it have a longer life than box office would have otherwise dictated.
1: They really had a healthy ad campaign.
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Really,
1: they were everywhere.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, so those three shows are closing, and, and the Donna Summer musical is closing uh, December 30th. Um, and, you know, it reminds me that uh, there's a rhythm to every season. There's a rhythm to Broadway, and shows open and close. Another opening, another show because the corollary being another closing another show. Uh, that doesn't sound as does fun song. Cole Porter would not approve, no. Um, but someone tweeted the other day that, uh, and I wish I had written down who it was. I have a habit of not writing down who, who tweets things that I want to repeat. Um, so not giving proper credit. Not giving proper credit. But um, we should celebrate when shows close instead of being all mournful about them because it's amazing that anything ever even opens. Uh, given the amount of stars that need to align for a show to open on Broadway in terms of the capitalization, the talent, getting a theater. I mean, that alone is like, you know, striking out.
1: <laughs> Not to mention the competition. Right. There's a lot of fierce competition. Right. Out there. This hasn't always been the way Broadway worked. Not you know, at all. There were many, many, many years where there were empty theaters, mm-hmm. where, you know, shows didn't have to line up to, to wait for a house. And, and, and I think there's an argument to be made that the shows that were running possibly did better in those days because there was less to choose from, right? right. So you would see something that you may not have seen otherwise.
2: Absolutely, yeah, no, that's definitely and that all case. changed
1: in. The, what, the 90s?
2: Yeah, the 80s, late, 90s, yeah. yeah I think really it, the 90s, really the 90s.
1: really yeah. sort of the late 90s. I remember when I moved to New York in 95 or 6, I think it was 96, actually, there were empty houses. I mean, there was nothing ever was in the court. The right. Lyceum wasn't a desirable house. The right. Blasco was, I worked on several flops in the <laughs> Blasco.
2: <You laughs> now know, it's one of the most desirable yeah.
1: theaters. Well, because it's one of the most beautiful theaters. It's gorgeous, yeah. I, yeah. I don't yeah. have to sell the Blasco on you. <laughs> but, um, but the point is, yeah, it's, right. it, was, it was a very different, Time and, mm-hmm. and you know we have this conversation often. Uh, there is a need for more theaters on on Broadway, and I right. just don't know how that theater is going to get built. What's gonna What's going to happen? Because right. there seems to be talk every few years, and then it falls through for whatever reason. I don't really know the backstory or whatever that is. Yeah.
2: Well, you know, it must just be the, the tremendous cost of building anything in New York City, let alone a theater. Um, you know, it's a tremendous undertaking.
1: There might also be a fear that
2: th-
1: this is a temporary thing and that I- in ten years' time or five years' time there won't right. be such a demand for theaters, and then you'll well, be stuck with real estate.
2: It's not called The Fabulous Invalid for no reason.
1: That's very true.
2: I like how you reworked right? it. I, o- I always try to work it back in, you know? But that's that's exactly what the, this raft of closing reminds me of, is that, you know, it's The Fabulous Invalid. I don't you remember can- the exact quote, but it's always in decline and always in... Resurgence. I don't know. Yeah, that's not the quote, that's but not quite it. We yeah. could the book. <laughs> um, but it's so true because e- behind each of these shows closing is another show that has booked their theaters, <laughs> right? So they're all going to be. You know, all those theaters will be full, and there'll be more actors working, and more uh, ushers ushering, and more ad uh, you know ad firms doing ads, and you know the industry goes on
0: jerk is about to start You cross your fingers and hold your heart It's curtain time and away we go Another opening, just another opening of another show
1: Tonight we are delighted to introduce a man who has called New York Theatre home for nearly four decades. With Marshall Brickman, he co-wrote the book for the smash hit Jersey Boys. He also wrote the sensational Peter and the Starcatcher. This season, you can see him work wonders once again with his book for The share Show. Please welcome my friend, Rick Ellis.
0: Oh, well, that was very well done, James. Oh, I didn't and, and It was very, very well done. One would almost have thought you were reading. <laughs> yeah, <it was. laughs> um, I just want to make a slight amendation. It's it's almost close to six decades because I grew up here. I was born here, and I saw my first Broadway show when I was three years old. My my mother, with whom I was just talking outside, because she has a, a colonoscopy tomorrow. <laughs> because, you know, just to indicate that I'm not going to hold any punches back. Um, uh, uh, My mother uh, took my brother and me to see My Fair Lady when I was three at the Mark Hellinger, now Times Square Church Theater. And, uh, And I've been going ever since. So it's 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 way more than four decades. I'm sorry to say, I wish it we're only four decades. <laughs> I think
1: I was referring to your professional career. However, oh that, oh sorry,
0: professional. However, there is an
1: argument to be made that from the age of three, you have been working in the theater. Well, I've been
0: working, comma, in the theater. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Punctuation's very important, right?
0: You know that tells the story. I, no, yeah. I, 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 um. Uh, should I just dive in with with, uh, with, uh, with a vague uh, minutiae and, and trivia?
1: Well, I'm curious if you have any recollection of seeing My Fair Lady.
0: You know, I do. And many years after I saw My Fair Lady, I was doing the advertising for Victor Victoria with Julie Andrews, whom I saw in My Fair Lady at the age of three. <laughs> and um, And I got a chance to tell her what I will now tell you. I have three... Distinct memories, and and this was you know we sort of very valiantly and and proudly sat in the very last row of the very last upper section of the Mark Hellinger. That's a big theater. Uh, You know, I I never ever sat in the orchestra until I was working at Sereno Coin. I didn't I didn't know that I would even be allowed. It would I I I imagine somebody was going to tap me on the shoulder and say, "I'm sorry, you have to go back upstairs." We, you know, we. My my parents uh, are also from New York, and they courted, uh, uh, you know, going to the theater. Going to the theater was cheaper than going to movies in those days. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, off we went to the Mark Hellinger on some s- Saturday matinee, much to the chagrin of everyone sitting around us. I'm sure <laughs> my brother was six, I was three, and uh, my mother said it was the first time I sat quietly in the for three years. And um, so she decided after that that um, it being cheaper than a babysitter, she would take me to the theater as much as possible because I would be quiet. (laughs) Uh, I remember the rule about being quiet given to me when I said, those books are painted because the bookcase in Higgins' atelier were, were... uh, a painted drop, a cloth drop. I didn't know anything about paint or cloth or drops. <laughs> I just knew that they weren't real, and I wanted to demonstrate even then <laughs> that I that I could see things. To um, and uh, and my mother said, "No, we we don't. You don't get to speak until the lights come back on." <clears throat> and so I was quiet. And then when the lights came back on at the intermission, I spoke about my second recollection, which was Julie Andrews or whoever that woman was um, in a nightgown on a green divan a word I did not know (laughs) um, an oddly shaped sofa, my dad was in the furniture business so I knew from sofas, but I'd never seen a sofa shaped like that one but there she was, and she was singing and she, and it was, I could have danced all night, and she hit this note at the end, and I'd never heard a human being make a sound like that which I thought was really extraordinary and then at the very end of the act was the ascot number mm-hmm. and a stagehand got caught behind a piece of balustrade scenery and crouched for the whole time and from all the way upstairs you could clearly see a man who was dressed like nobody else right. on stage like a normal person right. <laughs> Dressed like I was dressed, you know, or if I had been an adult, adult. Um, and uh, and he was crouched there the whole time, and I got so excited because I thought he was going to spring up and surprise her or something. I didn't know that he wasn't part of the show, right? And I and those are my three memories of of, uh, my first theater experience. I
1: love that one of them has something to do with books. Because you are an avid lover of books and a, and a yes. voracious reader.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, will, well, I would be a voracious reader, except now I'm a voracious writer, so I don't get <laughs> to read as much as I would like to because, I have, because I, I'm, 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 a, I'm a slower writer than I am reader. <laughs> you have just
1: sort of finished work on The share Show. Is that, a, is that an appropriate way to, to well, put it?
0: Well, you know, Jerome Robbins said you're never finished. You just run out of time. Right. right. Yes. Do so, you feel that way? Uh, well, I personally I feel like I ran out of time many many decades ago, but I, I uh, we work. Let's just say, and this is unusual, which is why I'll mention it. We had we our last change and our last blocking rehearsal was at four thirty. On Monday afternoon a week ago, can I say the date? Do you is it relevant? Can. Yeah. Uh, to today is Monday, December tenth. A week ago, December third, we opened, and uh, at six o'clock and at four thirty that afternoon, an hour and a half before opening curtain, we put in our last change and blocking change.
1: Wait, but what about critics?
0: Well, you may ask,
1: because <laughs> <laughs> um, the critics already been.
0: Yes, yes, they had, but yes. but but Cher had also already been, and she said, "I I want you to do I want you to try to do one more thing for me," and um, she, Cher, at the very beginning <laughs> of our uh, relationship, uh, which dates back to uh, just about three years, uh, October of fifteen, um, I promised her that I would do everything I possibly could, and. Uh, I was very unpopular last Monday, when I reminded the cast that I said I would do everything I possibly could, and that meant all of us would do everything. I was speaking on behalf of whoever would be involved in the enterprise. Because and if so you write it, we they've got to say it. Well, it was really maybe three and a half lines of of altered dialogue, but but there was but there was a blocking change, and it was a substantial blocking change, and um, and uh, it just gave her some peace of mind. And uh, as she was, you know, about 50 feet away changing into her opening night (laughs) frock, I thought it would be best to try to accommodate her. And the director, uh, our wonderful director, Jason Moore, agreed. And the cast eventually (laughs) agreed.
1: That seems very unusual to put in a change after the show is, say, (laughs) frozen.
0: Well, we were frozen. um, But... uh, it, it, this was a show where the usual rules did, just did not apply,
1: mm. right? Which is probably the only way that you could get the share show up is to, to not follow all the rules. Oh
0: no, we would have gotten it up. It just would have been a different. It would have been a different show. The show was always in a state of flux, and um, and uh, but now it's now it's actually no longer in flux. Now the audience just gets to come and see it and enjoy it, and the actors get to. Come and perform it. And settle and Go it. home. Mm. Yes, and settle it.
1: So I was fortunate enough to see this change because
0: I saw it after you opened. That's right. Well, then you saw it. And I'm going
2: to have to come back to see it with the
0: change. <laughs> okay. But if you, when you, when you do, uh, let me know when it is, and and we'll go out afterwards, and, and see if you can spot it. <laughs> I, would,
2: I would. love that. I would love that. Yeah. So
1: how did you? How did the share show come to you? What was the? What? How did that happen?
0: You mean the? Uh, how did the idea occur to me? Or How no, did how the did project? The job? Yeah. How did the project? Itself? I was sitting at my uh, desk one day and the phone rang. This is how everything has come <laughs> to me. Um, I'm kind of uh, in that, uh, the Russians used to call it a, a, a dray horse, you know, a, a work a worker in the Chekhovian sense of we must work, Kostya, we must work. You know, I, I've always equated work with um, uh, sustainability and um, Invariably, uh, the the phone rings and somebody says, "I w- would like you to do this." And along comes the next work. Um, in that sense, I've been a pinball in my life, you know, just being shot from side to side, and never really having a plan. I just wanted to work in the theater. I've had every job, I think, probably every job you could have in the theater, from sweeping the stage, pulling the curtain, uh, t- you know, running a light. Board um, designing, uh, directing, writing, acting, singing, dancing, advertising. Um, there, ha- there hasn't been much I haven't done. Have you ushered. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, uh, I, I, I just wanted to be inside those rooms. And uh, once again, the phone rang. It was, uh, it was about. It was about this time, four years ago, and uh, I picked up the phone innocently enough and said hello, and I heard, hi, it's Cher on the other end of the phone, and I, like anyone would, I assumed it was Christian Borle, (laughs) (laughs) Um, because the day before he had called pretending to be, you know, Obama. Right. (laughs) So I thought, uh, so I said, I'm sure I said, uh, oh, Christian, I'm busy. And then the voice on the other end of the phone said something else, and I thought, "Wow, that's a really good <laughs> Cher impersonation." <laughs> and it, uh, I, it dawned on me after a moment or two that it, 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 it probably was Cher. And uh, and she said, "I want you to write a, I want you to write the show of my life." And I said, um, "You don't want me. I'm the, uh, I'm the, I'm, I'm the wrong guy." let me give you Harvey Feierstein's phone number or Paul Rudnick's phone number. They've probably written it already and you could get it on right away. And she <laughs> said, no, no, I, I, why don't you want to do it? And I said, because I, I, um, I really did say this, which can, 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 can we use language on this show? Oh, yes. Yeah. Go for it. I, you know, I said to her, look, I'm kind of an asshole. By which I mean, it's hard for me to lie. I spent twenty years in advertising, which meant that I lied for twenty years. So I I wanted to I I, I, it's now my effort to speak the truth. My truth is, um, I think you're swell, but I'm you know, I've never been I've never particularly been a fanatic. You know, I, I don't have any of your records. I I've seen your films. I think you're a good actress, I think you're a good singer. I, I feel like without make, having made any effort, I know everything about your life, it's so well-documented. So what could I possibly tell an audience that they don't already know? If I know it, surely all the people who are your fans, I'm, and I'm sure they're legion, must know everything already. What, and she said, well, there's lots, there's lots for people to know. And I said, oh, okay, but let me, let me give you one other piece of information. My husband has just been diagnosed with brain cancer and my life is in turmoil right now, so it's difficult for me to plunge into a project. And she said, well, you know, I don't take no for an answer usually, um, so I'm going to call you back. And that was the end of that. And that was beginning of, that was in the fall sometime of 2014. And then in May of 15, about two weeks after Roger dropped out of the visit, Uh, which Rick Miramontes, you may have heard of him, was doing the press for. Uh, uh, He's over in the corner, by the uh, way. uh, my sweet, dear husband, um, with brain cancer and two brain surgeries, was performing eight times a week in a Broadway show until six weeks before he died. And he dropped out of the show in the middle of May, and at the end of May, the phone rang, and it was Cher again, and she said, I'm in New York, and I want to... um, I, I think we should meet. And I said, I can't leave the house. My, my husband is gravely ill, which he was by that time. And she said, well, where are you? I'll come over. And she came and she stayed for four hours.
1: Mm. Were you reluctant to have her come over at that I, time? I
0: was, I didn't know what I was. Right. I was, I, that, was, uh, I wasn't thinking.
1: I know that was not I, an
0: easy time. I think time. just to get off the phone. Right, right. Said, easier to say, come said, over. Fine, because uh-huh. I thought she's never going to come over. <laughs> she's never going to come over. Well, the next thing I know, she's sitting in my living room, and and we're talking, and I mean, really, she's talking, and she said some odd things to me, and I questioned her, and she said, there, you see, I say those things all the time, and no one ever asks me about them.
1: Like, what kind of odd things?
0: That when she told Sonny she was unhappy with their business arrangement and he told her it wasn't going to change that she thought about suicide. Mm. and, and then she, But she said it en passant and then continued talking and I said, well, wait, a wait, wait a minute. <laughs> what do you mean you, you know, and she said, I stood on the balcony and, and I thought I could just jump off the balcony and I said, but you were a mother and she said, yes, I don't know that I would have jumped off the balcony but I actually thought about it but you know, what's interesting is Nobody's ever asked me. And I tell this story all the time. You're the first person to say, stop. And I said, well, that just means you've been talking to the wrong people. I mean, who have you been talking to? Get better friends. Yeah. He said, people just have always made up their mind about me. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's why I want you to do it. And I said, Share, look, look at my life.
1: And you weren't saying yes to her. I was absolutely not that had to have played a big part in in
0: in her Well, you know, when somebody asks you out on a date and you say no, it doesn't usually it 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 just makes them want to go out even more. Right. Now I'm not suggesting that she thought that she thought she wanted to date you. (laughs) No, she absolutely did not want to date me. Um but uh I think she was intrigued because she's a you know when you're famous on that level you actually don't hear no a lot. Right. She said, I want you to do this. This was the end of May when she came over. And I said, I can't can't think about even, um, you know, what I'm going to have for dinner. And I thought that would really be the end of it because I was reasonably emphatic.
1: Was there anything in your back of your mind saying, this might be something I need to do or that Dr. Theater might help me... Get through what's I wasn't coming. Even,
0: I wasn't even having that kind of a rational process at that time. No. I was just thinking about Roger and death and just making my life it through each day, and you know, really just hel- helping him get through the end of his life. You know, it's it's awful when it's awful as a sidebar. It's awful when you're told that the person you know that you've loved all your life is going to die, and there's no um, way that's not going to happen. So it was devastating, and he was devastated, and I was devastated, and and um I wasn't thinking about work at all. Um and then in July Roger passed away and uh in at the end of September uh Cher called again and she she did something so sweet, she said I'm not kidding, she said um I've read everything that's happened. I know everything you've gone through. I've waited a discreet amount of time, and I think it's now time for you to get on a plane and come out to California, and we should get to know each other. You have to rejoin the human race. And I said, Cher you're actually quoting Thornton Wilder and she said no I'm quoting Hello Dolly and we laughed just like that and and she said I bet that's the first time you've laughed and I said yeah and she said so don't you think you should come we'll talk about Roger as much as you want which was just so was so sweet she was so sweet and i and i really hadn't been out of the, the house you know and I, I i really felt like i was dead too you know and she gave me this 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 stranger threw me this lifeline so i got my ass on a plane and i went out to california and i spent Ten days, hanging out at her house, and for the first two days, all we did was talk about Roger, whom it turned out she knew from the mid '60s when they were like hanging. You know, I mean, we traced that over the course. Did they hang of the, out
2: in London? In London 2000, right? Yeah.
0: London at the Bag and Nails Club, which I have since written a show about. The beat goes on beat goes on drums keep pounding a rhythm to the
1: brain la-da-da-da-dee la-da-da-da-da charleston was once the rage of home.
0: Men her, the current thing,
2: uh-huh T.D.
1: Bob a our newborn king, uh-huh And the beat goes on The beat goes on
0: I went out to California and hung out with her and got to know her. And at the end of my time there I pitched her an idea, and she said, "Okay, great, do that." And is that is that the shape of the
2: show now? I or?
0: said I, I said I was going to do the Terry Gilliam variety show of her life.
1: <laughs> Did she know what that meant?
0: Well, he, she didn't. She doesn't see a lot of theater, so I couldn't use theater references. But she but she's sort of a she's sort of a uh, uh, an expert on cinema.
1: Oh, I did not know that. So
0: I uh. thought, oh well, well, the, here's what she'll know, you know, yeah. the variety show because variety show was so much a part of her right. life and, and the way people think of her. But um, the Terry Gilliam part, you know, a, a boy could open his closet bedroom and a pirate ship would come out. Right. And uh, and she said, I totally get it. I totally get it. And I said, and I want to use more than one actor to play you. Why? She said, well, because, um, well, first of all, uh, so that it's performable, because one actor couldn't sing a show about you eight times a week, it would be too much. Your songs, you're famous as a solo and as part of a duo, Duo, you know, but you're also famous as a film actress, you're famous in so many different ways. Right. Um, I would like to represent you by more than one person so that I could write you as a girl group. And that way, I won't have to resort to a narrative voice like we used in Jersey Boys, and that's been used, you know, in the uh, other other of these musical biographies. This way, you can argue with yourself, you can support yourself, but, you know, essentially when you're, you know, when you get out of the tub in the morning and you're combing your hair and putting your makeup on and you're having a conversation with yourself in the mirror, I want to... Dramatize those conversations because I think that's a fun way of presenting you and then songs that we've always known as solos we'll be able to hear as solos duets trios the variety of it I think is kind of exciting and it also means that um, we are not we won't be subject of an impersonation you know when you're doing the story of Frankie Valley, you can say this guy is Frankie Valley and nobody knows what Frankie Valley's like so they go okay that guy's Frankie Valley. <laughs> But nobody's going to accept one person doing you. Mm. Or, it need, or it would need to be a female impersonator. And I, don't, I can't write camp. It's not in my skill set. I would do a really shitty job. So if you want a camp show and you want to go that route, then you should go that route, but I'm not your guy. And she said, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do camp. And I said, okay, well, that's good because I, I would be bad at it. <laughs> so but I would do but this I could do and this would be interesting to write and it would be interesting to act and be interesting I think for an audience to see so she said okay do that and I went to the airport and when I got home I turned my phone on and my phone was like exploding because she had tweeted and she's got, you know, as many tweet followers right. as, oh, yeah. as Trump does, you know, Oh, this is what we're doing. We're doing three shares and we're doing, and, Rick Ellis <laughs> oh, is writing it, and it was going to be like the Terry Gilliam variety show of my life. And I called her and I said, share, <laughs> share. This is like the definition of premature, you know, right. you, you know uh, what do you mean? I said, well, you like, you only get one bite at the apple. We should announce this when we're ready to announce it. And she said, Cher gets as many bites as Cher wants. (laughs) And I said, and Cher also talks about herself in the third Third
2: person. person. Noted, right? Really,
0: really healthy, right? (laughs) (laughs) So Now it's going to be like a Tennessee Williams play. (laughs) It
1: also just proved your point of why you should have three shares.
0: I thought so. When I was telling her I didn't want to do it, one of the things I one of one of the things I said a lot to her was, "You're always going to say, that's not the way it really happened. That's not what I really said. That's not what I really did. That's not who was really there. That's not what I was really wearing. That's not when it took place. And I don't care because we're not doing the Ken Burns documentary right. about your life. And if that's what you want, I'll give you Ken Burns' number. Right. You know the and go and do that. But." The, this is theater. It's not a documentary. It's, a, it's theatrical. So you have to allow me license to conflate ca- characters, to expand moments, to, ex- to have principles of ex- inclusion and exclusion, because the thing can only be two and a half hours long, right. and an hour and 15 minutes of that two and a half hours is going to be music, and 15 minutes of that two and a half hours is going to be intermission so that gives me a little under an hour to tell your story the story I'm telling is about a woman a woman who wasn't the original pioneer but was a pioneer in how in a man's world and the James Brown song it's a man's 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 world was in the show at that time which she loved actually and I loved but we couldn't get actually licensed because somebody's doing a James Brown musical Of course, um, there you go. but you know in a man's 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 world how a woman and we're talking about in the 60s and in the 70s and in the 80s was constantly having to pick herself up from losing everything and start over again and over and over and right. over and over and over again. And how do you do that? And I, I said that's the story I want to tell. And I want to tell it. I yes, I'm a man, obviously, but I want to try to tell it. This was before the Me Too movement, but not really for me or for any, any of us who are feminists. And I've always been. A, you know, I'm a. I was raised in a New York liberal left-wing Jewish intellectual household where feminism was taken for granted we were we were we were feminists before betty friedan wrote the feminine mystique you know i was raised to believe that so i said i want to represent that for you in some way that's authentic but it may mean that aspects of your Of the presentation are not authentic but they will feel authentic and I said look you know Julie Taymor never went to Africa (laughs) but the Lion King feels authentic so it doesn't matter whether it's what really happened as the great Aaron Sorkin said art isn't about what actually happened it's about what you do with what actually happened in order to tell a story that resonates.
1: What we're talking about brings me to my favorite moment in the show which is in the second act when you do The Beat Goes On and you tell yes. her entire film career mm-hmm. in one song because by the time, the, very early in the second act, Robert Altman comes out and anybody who knows Cher's career goes, oh, I know where we are in her life, right? It's come back to the five and dime Jimmy Dean.
2: And that scene is dynamite.
1: And how am I going to get home by midnight <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> tonight if we're just at Bob Altman coming and auditioning her?
0: Right. And then something brilliant happens. And well, you- the Bob Altman scene actually was a case in point. But she said, don't you know that was a play? I never sang at that audition, so there can't be a song in that scene. And I said, Cher, trust. You have to trust. This is a, First of all, it's a musical. Second of all, it's not important. I'm never going to say, come back to the five and dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean, because while I saw it, and incidentally, she was playing at the Martin Beck Theater when Roger was playing at the Plymouth Theater in Nicholas Nickleby. Oh, you're crazy. and she saw Nicholas Nickleby. Uh-huh. Did um, she
1: go up into the balcony like all the other actors? No, and watch the <laughs> second actor.
0: No, I think she arrived act? in a litter and was taken down to the. You know, I, I don't know. I don't know what she. But I remember. But she said, "Oh, you know, I." I, she said, I, 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 I know I know Roger from Nicholas Nickleby because we were both on Broadway at the same time and I went to see it. But I think I know him from years before that and let's figure out where that is and that's why we went on that sort of you know, ride back to nineteen The club days. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but um, uh, I said, Cher, the point is that the, the Altman scene isn't supposed to be um, verisimilitude. I, um, what I want to do is I want to, I want to use that scene to tee up the idea that you actually were a natural and that Altman recognized it. And what I, so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to have him say, if you're dyslexic, don't worry about reading the script. Sing to me, and I'll be able to know whether you can act or not. And the next thing that happens in the show is her movie career. Right. Because of course, whilst she was doing Come Back to the Five and Dime, one matinee, Mike Nichols knocked on her dressing room door, she opened the door, there was Mike Nichols standing in the door, and he said, I have a movie for you. And Silkwood happened. Silkwood. Right.
1: Well, Five and Dime changed her changed her life.
0: Absolutely. The thing I, the thing actually, if you were to say, Rick, what is the thing you're most proud of in the Share Show? I, the thing I'm most proud of, I think, because it's my, it's the thing I love most that musical theater can do. And we do it in the Share Show. And it's that seven minutes. Yes. In seven minutes, we covered her entire movie career essentially which, which is with what, one number, which, which is a signature 25? well' it's, it's 1982 to 1988.
1: Okay, so it's a decade.
0: but it's a number that has nothing to do with the 80s. The beat goes on right. written by Sonny, a big hit for Sonny and Cher. It was their theme song on the on the variety show. And we've been teasing that song mm-hmm. for the, the, you know the two hours up to that point. And now here comes one of the shares but least likely to take us through her movie career with some surprise, special guest appearances by some iconic Bob Mackey outfits that help us also place it in time. And they're famous enough to actually be part of the storytelling. Right. And in those few minutes, we, we do what in the movies is usually sort of a slow motion montage set to a piece of music where, you know, you traverse a long period of time. And we know what that's like in the movies because we see it all the time. But in the theater, it rarely happens. And mm-hmm. it's a great... It's just... It is everything that musical theater is. And it was It was really, really exciting to write and to bring to Daryl Waters, our music supervisor, because I actually wrote it on music paper.
1: Did you? <laughs> um,
0: because, because it was going to be the song with... Lyrics that were rewritten specifically to tell this story, and then a few lines of dialogue in between, and it was all a tribute to those great um, sequences that Jack Cole used to do or Bob Fosse used to do, sure. where you would, yep. you know, you would like show your stuff choreographically. So it was an opportunity for the actress, who is literally a teenager, to sort of become a star which is what's happening to share in that period of time. And, it, and, and, and also um, uh, an opportunity for us to really consolidate some storytelling and jump forward us to, to cover a lot of the stuff that the audience knows very well, like Silkwood and Mask and, and Moonstruck. They, we know she won the Oscar. We know that she did Silkwood. We know that she was great in movies. She thought, well, where are the scenes from the movies, she said. And I said, I don't want to recreate scenes from the movies. I want to tell the story of what happened to you as you were on this ride up. Because shortly after you were on the ride up, everything collapsed again. So, you know, it's part of the roller coaster experience of your life. To bring you really, 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 really slowly up, 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 up the roller coaster, because we're about to go woo, 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 all the way down and around and over and up, and that's going to give the audience that wonderful sense of being on the trip with you. Yep. So this number is the slow ramping up to the very, 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 very top. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful. Um, Opportunity for Michaela Diamond, our 19-year-old share, who was in high school. I didn't realize she was that young. Oh, my 19. gosh. She was in high school up until, wow. like, last year. <laughs> wow. Um, uh, LaGuardia, the high school performing there you go. arts. Yeah. That has, you know, given us Ansel Elgort and Timmy Chalamet and now Michaela Diamond, you know. Um she was spectacular in the show she's, off. Oh, she's wonderful. Mackie gave her an original Mackie to wear. Wow. And, uh, and we have the full ensemble, so it was a great opportunity for our brilliant choreographer, Christopher Gatelli, to show off his take on those great old Jack Cole, mm-hmm. Bob Fosse sequences. And at the end, this kid ends up holding an Oscar in her hand. And she's the one who, you know, had the dream from a very early age of wanting to be an an actor, wanting to be famous, wanting to be a star. And she actually, by God, has become one Mm. against rather impossible odds. With these little cameos of Stephanie J. Block, uh, one of our other brilliant shares, um appearing in these iconic Mackie outfits at these historic points in that period of time to sort of be thwarted or praised. Oh, yes. Penne, thank you. (laughs) I'm having penne, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Um, and, uh, and, then, and then it's over And we're on to the next section And I, it's the thing that I love the most uh, for, for, for all those reasons It's mm. very exciting as an audience member It
2: really is I have to say you know, I, I saw the show with a friend of mine Who had already seen it And when we walked out of the theater The first thing we talked about Was
0: that sequence I wish you wrote for the New York Times I, Well, you know You and me both <laughs> No, actually I think the, the critic from the New York Times Talked about how awful it was Right because why would you want to consolidate the most famous part of her life into one number? Why, why aren't there scenes from? He asked the same question she asked, she who you know, was asking it because she doesn't know about the theater. One would hope. <laughs> <laughs> but I well, think the,
1: you make a very good point? Why do we need
0: to see what we've already seen? on Or be told what we already know. Right, well Instead this number tells us something much more personal which is we see somebody we see the private share Mm -hmm. delighting in the things that are happening to her even the disappointing things that are happening to her because she's finally living the dream that she's had since she was six years old. Right. And I think that it's Great, and we offer it with no apologies. And I'm thrilled that you guys like it because I sure do too. Yeah.
2: Oh, well, God. you just said you you offer it with no apologies, and I the the thing that struck me about it is that it was it so clearly had the imprint of
0: share. It felt like the share show. But it's also something that you could only do in the theater. Right. There's no Absolutely. movie version of what of that. Right.
2: Oh, of course not. And yeah.
0: That's what I love about it. Mm-hmm. I I told her we would try to do a theatrical version of her life. And this is in microcosm exactly what the whole show is. Mm-hmm. Uh, like a, a, a theatricalized, sort of acid trippy version of her life, not told in a, and then this happened, and this right. happened, and this right. happened way, but in the, in the context of a, here it all is, and I'm so famous that everything I do right. is kind of a show. And that's, of course, why we called it the Share Show. Um, Not because we couldn't think of a a better (laughs) title. It's the perfect title because her life is a show. Right. We can't, none of us can. She's so famous. (laughs) She's not famous like the famous people that we know she's so famous that, her, that it's not you know there's maybe ten people in the world who are famous like that right you know and it, it's a different sort of existence and to represent that somehow also is you know part of the whole assignment here she's not famous in an ordinary way she's famous in an extraordinary way you don't I mean she is an icon. she's actually an icon she's actually been famous for 60 years almost <laughs> I mean, that's just different from, you know, Kristen Chenoweth or you right. know, Sutton right. Foster.
1: I think it's also, you said something a little earlier about the, the device of the three shares and, and how that was the only way to really tell this story. Mm-hmm. And I think you're absolutely right. The fact that they can all talk to each yes. other, the fact that they can experience this story with one another is the thing that keeps it from feeling campy. It's the thing that grounds the whole experience. You know, we,
0: I, I think it's very smart of you to say, and, and uh, each time we did another presentation, the thing that landed best, most powerfully, I should say, with the audience, the music, of course... But the it was the scenes with the three of them, right? And I so I uh, I kept doing it more and more and more, and um, and inviting the audience to see those sort of they're they're it's actually they're actually written as one um, what would you call it like a interior monologue? Mm-hmm. You could join them all up, and, and it would be co- it would be coherent right. as a monologue.
2: It's psychological though. Right, yes, you're you're completely. In, you're in the it's, mind.
0: it's somebody yeah. talking to herself. Right, and um, and there are opposing points of view, mm-hmm. and there are supportive points of view, and there are differing points of view, and there are challenges, and there are um, uh, complacencies, and there are placations, and and uh, support systems, and defense defenses, and and offenses, and uh, but it's an art. In, in other words, it's an argument. Right, and. It's, I think, great that we give life to that argument so that the audience is watching an actual argument as opposed to one person doing all of that. Right. I'm not sure how that would work, but I know that it would be really, really hot, hard to find the one person who could do that right. and sing right. 40 numbers. We have 40 numbers in the show. Was it a tough sell? Was what a tough sell? The, the idea tough of sell? having the, the three shares. Were you constantly fighting? No, I have to say that the producers were on board immediately. It became, um, it became somewhat uh, irksome, I guess, when uh, Scott Rudin decided to uh, present three so, Total women, mm-hmm. and then when uh, Des yeah. uh decided to do Donna Summer. But I, with the best will in the world, and completely honestly, I can tell you, the decision to do it with the share show was before any of that happened. And um, what are you going to do? You know, right. I, I, you know, you can't own a, th- a thought process. <laughs> and as I said, the idea of having multiple actors portraying the same role. Is much much older than Albie or Des MacInniff, or even Albie and Des McEnough added together.
1: <laughs> There's a fourth star of the Share Show, and that is Bob Mackie's costume. Oh well, yes, oh my
0: God, yeah. yes,
2: they are a character unto themselves.
0: Well, and that's you know that's Share. I mean, Bob Mackie wouldn't have taken my phone call. <laughs> Cher told Jason Moore, I mean, we had originally thought we want that Mackie, We would ask Mackie to design a dozen or Couple so looks for of her. the yeah. iconic looks. Mm-hmm. And then someone else would do the rest of the show. And Cher said, well, if you want Bob Mackie, I'll get you Bob Mackie. And she got us Bob Mackie, so we have <laughs> Bob Mackie.
1: <laughs> I love that idea of, of just... I'm Cher. I can have what I right. want. I'm yeah.
2: not told no. Well, there's that that ultimate comeback line at the end. I think it's towards the end of the show, but mom, I am a rich man, right?
0: Well that's you know, I know it's it's very late in the show, but that's every night when I I it gets exactly the same reaction every night. The audience laughs and bursts into applause. Mm-hmm. This the what she's responding to is her mother who has throughout the show suggested that it would be good if she settled down and marry a rich man right. says, you know, I still wish you'd settle down and marry a rich man and she says, oh, mother, I am a rich man. Mm-hmm. Now, there's something heartbreaking about that. Right. Of course. And, it's an acknowledgement. And, and wonderful in her self-knowledge. Mm-hmm. The audience applauds, I think, the fact that Cher has always told it like it is, and she you know, and it's something that she could say. But it's it I think the applause happens also because it's true. Yes. A woman in her generation at that time did have to become a rich man in order to function successfully in the world that she wanted to function in. Hopefully now the women, the young women in the audience are leaving thinking, well, maybe I don't have to become a rich man. You know, um, and maybe I don't have to settle, as Jane Wagner wrote for Lily Tomlin in Search of Signs of Intelligent Life, oh, if I'd known how hard it was going to be trying to have it all, I would have been willing to settle for less. (laughs) Hopefully, she won't have to settle and she won't have to be a man. She'll be able to be a woman and still have it all or whatever that means to her. And she gets to decide what that means and she gets to decide how to go about it. And what's exciting to me is the women who leave the show and say, I feel so empowered you know yes i'm a guy i i wish that i wish as the author of the share show that i weren't because i know it's kind it looks a little uh, Um, you know it looks a little odd because I'm really trying to write a a piece about women and represent something that may not be authentic in the way that Cher originally wanted it to be authentic which is like sort of factually authentic but authentic in terms of its emotional impact on women in the audience I would like her to be that kind of an icon, somebody who, who lights the path for the next generation.
1: Don't need your sympathy There's nothing you can say or do for
0: me And I don't want a miracle You'll never change for no one And I hear your reasons why Where did you sleep last night? Was she worth it? Was she worth it?
1: Was oh.
2: Here with You May Be Wondering. We just finished chatting with Rick Ellis, who, as we discussed, wrote the books for Jersey Boys and The Share Show, two very prominent jukebox musicals. If you've never encountered that term before, you may be wondering what is a jukebox musical? If you have, and chances are if you're listening to this podcast, you probably have, you may be wondering about the history of the jukebox musical as a form of entertainment. Well, at its most basic definition, a jukebox musical is a stage musical that features the pre-existing songs of a popular musical act in its storytelling. By my estimation, they usually take one of four forms. The first and most obvious is just a straight-up review, like Smokey Joe's Cafe, which uses the songbook of Lieber and Stoller, or the 1978 Tony Award-winning Best Musical Ain't Misbehavin', which used songs from the Harlem Renaissance era, mostly those of Fats Waller. The second form is that of a biographical story about the musical act itself. There are tons of examples here, from Jersey Boys and the Cher Show to Buddy, the Buddy Holly story, The Boy from Oz about Peter Allen, Lennon about John Lennon, Fila about Nigerian musician and activist Fila Kuti, Motown, which was about a whole bevy of acts, Beautiful, the Carol King musical, On Your Feet about Gloria Estefan, and Donna, the Donna Summer musical, to name a few. The third form is one that takes an existing story, whether a play or a book or a film, and adds the songs of a particular musical group or period, sometimes ones associated with the original work itself. Examples here are the stage adaptations of Saturday Night Fever and Xanadu. Hot Feet used the music of Earth, Wind, and Fire to retell The Red Shoes. And this season's Head Over Heels takes a 16th-century play by Sir Philip Sidney and adds music by the Go-Go's. Even 42nd Street, the 1980 musical, Add songs from the expanded Dubin and Warren songbook that were not in the 1933 film. The Gershwin musicals, My One and Only and Crazy For You, did the same thing. A fourth form is a jukebox musical with a wholly original story, often reverse-engineered to interpolate songs from a musical group. The best and most successful example is Mamma Mia, using the songs of ABBA. But there's also Good Vibrations, using The Beach Boys. Escape to Margaritaville, using Jimmy Buffett. And Girl from the North Country, using Bob Dylan. Beyond these four types I've outlined, there are, of course, other forms, like The Dance Musicals, Movin' Out, The Times They Are a-Changin' and Come Fly Away, or American Idiot, which took an entire album of Green Days and dramatized it on stage. While jukebox musicals often get a bad name, seen by some as lazy recycling aimed more at making money than making art, jukebox musicals have been around as long as the term jukebox itself. We just didn't recognize them as such. And that's because they mostly started as movies. That's right. Classic movies like Singin' in the Rain, The Bandwagon, and uh, An American in Paris all featured original scripts that were built around pre-existing songs. To get real meta about it, all three have since become stage musicals. You may be wondering if jukebox musicals are increasingly a more common type of show. And you're right for thinking that. The trend on stage started slow in the 1970s, with shows like Beatlemania and A Misbehavin'. Bob Fosse's Dancing in 1978, like Susan Stroman's Contact more than 20 years later, also used pre-existing songs. The trend remained at a trickle, though, until the late 1990s, before exploding in the past 20 years. The first major success was Buddy, the Buddy Holly story, which started in London in 1989 and ran 12 years. While it was less successful on Broadway, it proved to producers and creative types alike that the model of telling an artist's story on stage using their songs could work. Now, just about every season on Broadway features one, if not several, jukebox musicals. The Cher Show just opened. Ain't Too Proud About the Temptations opens this spring. The timing of this phenomenon is no coincidence. The cornerstone of what makes jukebox musicals work is nostalgia. From the 1930s to the 1960s, songs from musicals were popular American music. That changed with the advent of rock and roll. And so, more than 50 years later, the canons of great artists and groups are being repackaged for audiences to enjoy, in any of the forms that I outlined. And lest we think that nostalgia belongs only to baby boomers, millennials are also getting on board too. Alanis Morissette's 1995 album, Jagged Little Pill, is now a musical. And a jukebox musical of the 1995 film, Clueless, is currently enjoying a sold-out run off Broadway. Love them or hate 'em, jukebox musicals have been around for over 80 years, and they're certainly here to stay. here. That's our show. Thanks for listening. The Fabulous Invalid is a production of O&M Etc. and The Fabulous Invalid LLC. Our theme music is by Lucky Chops. Today's episode was edited and engineered by Aaron Kaufman. Find us on iTunes and online at thefabulousinvalid.com and on social media at Fabulous Invalid. And be sure to tune in next Wednesday.
0: The fortune queen of New Orleans
1: is brushing her cat in her black limousine on the back seat were scratches from the marks of men,
0: her fortune she had won Couldn't see through the tinted glass, she said, home James, and he hit the gas I followed her to some
1: darkened room, she took my money, she said
0: She told me more
2: than I knew myself. Hey, it's Leslie Utom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of Meister Music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth.
1: Hi, I'm Gloria Stefflin. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Gapone. This is Lynn manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network.